electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Ahead this hour, yields on the 10-year hitting their highest level in nearly three years. Goldman's Jan Hatzius now forecasting front-loaded rate hikes with half-point hikes at the next two meetings. This after Powell's hawkish inflation talk yesterday. We'll discuss the pros and cons of this new tightening timeline with a former Fed economist. And the great energy transition. Crane shares launching an ETF filled with traditional energy names making the switch. But what about the oil and gas we need right now? We'll talk to the manager of that fund. Plus a growing divide in the staples sector between pandemic winners and losers. Our analyst is here to name names. But first, let's start with today's market action. As Scott mentioned a moment ago, the S&P above 4,500, that's the level people are watching right now. It's around the December lows, 4,507 for a 1% gain. Almost that uh, strong a gain for the Dow, which is up 264 today. The Nasdaq in the leadership role up 1.6% or 226 points. So a surprisingly strong rally given the move in rates and all that half point hike talk. Now the Fang name's doing strong. That's one reason why uh, the NASDAQ is doing well today. Meta up 2.5%, Alphabet up nearly 3%. And Nike, the big gainer and the Dow leader after a strong earnings beat. You can see here Nike shares adding about 3%. They're off their session highs though, as the excitement has waned somewhat, but still what investors were looking for. And the financials moving higher today as those rates rise. Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan and Regions, your leaders. Wells up almost four and a half percent. So speaking of rates, look at this move in the 10 year since Powell first started his hawkish pivot late last November. The 10 year at that time period was trading below one and a half percent, 1.44 to be exact. And look at what a move we've had, especially in the last couple of weeks here. So almost 2.4 percent today. 239, the high watermark, 237 is where we are right now. Now, we spoke with Dave Zervos of Jefferies yesterday, who said the markets are loving the Fed's inflation-fighting credibility. But my next guest sees it the very opposite, saying the Fed's quote-unquote incredulous dot plot last week just eroded decades of credibility. Joining me now is Bill Lee. He's the chief economist at the Milken Institute. It's great to have you on, Bill. And, uh, you think the Fed, there's no way they can achieve what they are telling us they're going to achieve? What I'm saying is that the markets don't believe they're going to achieve what they're going to, they want to achieve. The, the, the dot plot and the projections they presented was just an amazing case of uh, immaculate disinflation, right? Disinflation without rising unemployment or, or any kind of recession, any kind of slowdown. And that's the, what the markets are really not buying. That, that rate increase that you just pointed to, that that's all nominal rate increases, all because the expected inflation rate has just burst out for the five-year break-even inflation rates are now three and a half percent, way above what what where it was just a month ago. And that is a sign that despite the hawkish talk from Powell's press conference, uh, they still don't believe that the Fed will be doing this. And I think one of the things that uh, Jim Bullard has said was, we got to get to 3%. We got to get there fast, faster, the better. The faster, the better. You know, I was writing about this today and someone wrote back and said to me, why don't they just raise rates to 3% right now? 
Well, the markets would be very shocked because they, they didn't think the, the, the Fed would be able to do that. And also the Fed is counting, uh, and amazingly, they're still counting on half the inflation disappearing because the supply conditions are going to get better toward the end of the year and into next year. And that we, we have some doubts about. I think markets have some doubt about because the war looks like it's extending the supply problems around the world, not just in the commodities, but also to the global supply chains and, and manufacturing. But Bill, let's talk about what you mean when you say the markets aren't buying it. Um, there's kind of two schools of thought here, or probably more than that. But one is the Fed is, is going to do all of this, and as a result, growth is going to slow, and that's why the 10-year yield is still lower than where the Fed appears to be taking the funds rate. The other is they won't be able to follow through on what they want to because the economy won't be strong enough. So what do you think exactly is the message from the markets here? I think given the Fed's new framework, which emphasizes the importance of full employment, inclusive and maximum employment, uh, having said that, the markets are, are asking, can the Fed pivot around to saying we need inclusive disinflation because the poor are hurt even more by inflation? Uh, and right now, because the five-year break-evens are way above 3.5%, and even the five-year, five-year, the, the second half of that 10-year window, those rates have gone up to 2.25% from where it was, a rock-solid 2% before. So whatever credibility the Fed had it seems to have gone. And I think the, the, the fact that the projections are not showing any rise in unemployment kind of implies that the Fed has no intention of allowing unemployment to go up. But it seems to me, how do you read it, that Chair Powell is pretty dang serious about being hawkish right now. I mean, he's telling us every which way, every time we turn around, that he's going to try to get ahead of this. He even said yesterday the Fed would tighten beyond the neutral rate if necessary. Those, those caveats really make me wonder whether he's serious or not. Talk is cheap. But when we start to see... Uh, people uh, not finding jobs despite the huge number of vacancies when people are saying, my God, I'm, you know, the businesses are closing. And don't forget, consumption is already showing signs of slowing down. And the red hot sectors of the economy are really real estate and, and, and consumer durables. So the smart thing for the Fed to do is to really target the balance sheet, take away that excess liquidity that's feeding that overheated portions of the economy. And, 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 and in some sense, save some of its uh, rate increases uh, uh, for for later. Now, I think it had to be credible, they now have, are in a position where they have to front load. They have to have a couple of 50 basis point increases just to show that they're serious. But after that, if we could use the balance sheet judiciously, I think we can save ourselves the problem of getting ourselves into the kind of uh, recession that, that many people fear. Yeah, you've talked about this uh, many a time, how you'd like to see them uh, drain the balance sheet more than, than do rate hikes. So just a final point here to make sure that you know, people are, are on the same page. It's you, you just think as they go about this tightening, the economy is going to slow. I mean, do you think we're definitely going into a recession? It's not a problem if the economy slows, given that we're supposed to grow, if you look at Morgan Stanley's number, 4.3% year on year. That's, that's almost double what potential growth is right now. We have plenty of room to slow without this meaning that we have huge job losses and a recession or anything like that. Absolutely, Kelly. And, and most of that growth is coming from inventories. If you look at the latest GDP numbers, you strip away inventories, we have less than 2% growth with consumption investment. But the key thing is the Fed can get us into a slow landing and it, by, by using all the tools and not just focusing on interest rates. And that's been the, the mantra from the Fed. Primary tool for policy is the interest rate, and we'll use the balance sheet and, and consider it like growing grass, something in the passive state. I think it's time to reverse course and say we need to slow down the hot sectors of the economy and allow the sectors that are slowing already to just not 
to, to not be uh, affected by higher rates. All right, Bill, great to have you on today. Thanks for your time. Bill Lee with the Milken Institute. Now, as the big question is whether we can achieve a so-called soft landing as the Fed embarks on what could be a pretty severe tightening cycle, the Nasdaq's down 11 percent since Powell's hawkish pivot last November. But my next guest isn't too worried, saying historically stocks have held up pretty well to tightening. Joining me is Mark Smith. He's a senior vice president and portfolio manager at Wells Fargo Advisors. Mark, it's good to see you again. And tell me what gives you, you know, some reassurance here. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Uh, what gives me reassurance is that in the last 40 years, there have been six major uh, rate hikes that have happened. And almost every single one of those times, except for one, the uh, interest, uh, the market has been up, in some cases, double digits. So if you're just looking historically, uh, the economy is able to maneuver rate hikes uh, pretty well. I see here there's only once in the last 40 years that hikes resulted in a down market. Was that the, you know, the episode we hope we're not living through this time around? That, right. Tech was the was what did it last time with the tech bubble. Right. And so we're hoping that tech, given some of their earnings and, and recent reports, even though we're seeing a downturn and sometimes in some kind of 40 percent downside from the all time highs in tech, uh, we're hoping that that uh, some of this has been a little bit overdone. And so that won't be repeated. But yeah, that would be it the last time it was uh, 2000 during the tech bubble. Well, I would say that episode might give people, you know, unless you're in those stocks, people more broadly some comfort because. You know, you had markets overall, a very different story. You had the economy in only a six-month shallow recession, and that was with 9-11 and everything else going on. So, you know, that would be a much uh, more reassuring outcome, I think, than if we're talking about a repeat of the 1970s when stocks did pretty terribly. Right, exactly. And so um, what I think that we need to look at is where, the, where is there opportunity right now that we know that these rate hikes are going to be happening? Um, I think right now financials, are a great place to believe. They're one of the few sectors that when rates go up, they continue to make money and make more than they did when rates were lower. So you got to go in that. And then you're also seeing energy as a sector. Um, going back, all those different rate hikes also performed very, very well um, in all six of those different examples I gave earlier. I'm thinking back to the Paul Volcker era of the early 1980s when we had a double dip recession. The first one was sort of shallow, the recession. The second one, in response to more of his tightening, was pretty deep and pretty long lasting. And that's the whole debate we were just having with Bill Lee right, uh, just now, which is, can the Fed kind of keep inflation down without repeating that episode? And how telling do you think that double dip recession is for what we might now have to go through? Yeah, yeah Powell has a very uh, a tr tricky performance he has to do over the next two years, and that is to possibly give 11 rate hikes without completely killing the economy. And so good luck to him on that task. I think it's going to be a difficult one um, because he's looking at really short-term data and making uh, long-term strategic plays. So this is not going to be an easy thing for him. And I think that's what most investors are seeing, specifically my clients, is finding the, uh, the reason to go aggressively in the equity markets, knowing that this has to happen. Um, inflation is at 40-year highs, and the Fed has to act. And by them acting... Could they be actually slowing uh, an economic recovery and possibly creating recession? All that remains to be seen. And so uh, Powell's going to write a, a really good book about all this at the end of it, because uh, we're all waiting uh, to find out what's going to happen in the future. So, so you mentioned I'm financials. You, yeah. <laughs> financials, you think, are one place people can feel comfortable, albeit unless uh, maybe we have that slowing economy. But where else? Where else do you kind of look at the markets and say, you know, people should feel comfortable putting money to work? Well, one thing I've seen from all my clients specifically when I talk to them is our people are anxious to get out. 
And they've been a lot of times haven't done anything in two years. And many of my clients are going out and traveling internationally for the first time ever. So consumer discretionary, the hotels, the airlines, I think are going to be doing very well because there's a lot of pent up demand. So this is something that I I'm seeing no matter who I talk to, no one's still home. So they're using all that cash that we had they had saved up over the last two years. In fact, more Americans have cash in their checkbooks now than they've ever had in American history. And what do they want to do? They don't want to spend it necessarily on, on items for their home. I think they did that already. I think the play is now getting out, experiencing uh, things. And I think you're going to see that in all the consumer discretionary stocks in the next uh few quarters. Well said. I, it's all over my Instagram. I'm going to I'm not even going to check it next month during spring break. I don't want to know, you know where people are. The Caribbean, Florida, wherever they're going. Everyone have a great time. Mark, it's been great. Yeah, I just like to go palm tree back in my office. Make yeah. you feel better. <laughs> we'll put one on set here as well. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It's good to see you. Mark Smith with Wells Fargo Advisors. Coming up, a slew of new product announcements out of NVIDIA today as its investor day kicks off. The stock on pace for its sixth straight day of gains, up 27% since last week, but still down almost 20% from its October highs. We've got the trade on NVIDIA next. Plus, the Crane Shares Carbon ETF is on pace for its first negative quarter since inception. Now they're launching a new fund focused on decarbonization, but will it pay off for investors? And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. A pretty strong day across the board. 1% gains for the S&P, 1.7% for the NASDAQ, 237 on the 10-year. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The world's fastest AI supercomputer, a CPU super chip. Those are just a couple of the announcements so far today from chipmaker NVIDIA. Investors, for their part, excited about what the stock has been doing lately. While it's down 8% year-to-date, shares have surged 450% since their pandemic low. Christina Partsinevelis is at the NASDAQ with more for us. Christina? Well, once a chip company, NVIDIA has made clear artificial intelligence is very much part of its ethos. And this goes beyond just recognizing images and voice It's about new silicon architecture called Hopper, robotics, and becoming, quote, intelligence manufacturers. NVIDIA has new models for uh, video conferencing, for example, they just introduced. The Maxine platform can make it appear as if you are looking at the screen, so the real video that you're seeing is on your left right now, but this new platform can make your eyes look like you're actually uh, looking at the people you're talking to, and it also translates languages in real time. The big reveal, though, was its latest graphic chip called the H100. NVIDIA says it will increase the computing speed of AI algorithms. To put it in perspective, 20 H100s can sustain the equivalent of the entire world's internet traffic. 
and that'll be produced by Taiwan Semiconductor and is expected to come to market in the third quarter of this year. The company also unveiled its new Grace Central Processing Unit Superchip, so that would be a CPU superchip, which is pretty much two CPUs connected together. Think of it, uh, the memory storage capability on an even smaller chip. And I mentioned chips, AI, and software, but the company also teased it was building a new AI supercomputer called EOS. It claims it'll be the world's fastest when deployed. NVIDIA is not the only firm doing this. You have companies like Microsoft, Meta, Tesla that have all announced their own versions of AI supercomputers. So a lot of news there, hopefully not too technical for you guys, but uh, the stock uh, reacting on the news. What was the thing about how it can make your eyes look like they're looking at the camera? This is huge for Zoom users. Exactly, because they, he, uh, the CEO did comment on remote learning. So let's say I'm looking at you right now. I see a prompter in front of me. Sometimes when you're at home, you're reading and looking down. Their technology can make my eyes look like I'm looking at you when it's really I'm looking down like that. And so uh, that's just one example, which is why you had both sides of the screen as well as wow. real time. So I could immediately change How do we to get Greek it? or I, French. Wait, and can we get, I mean, is this like five years off from now or, or like around the corner? Well, there's different uh, models of the Maxine. That's the product that you're talking about. Uh, for this particular one, it's not out just yet. I have to check to see if it's uh, coming in the next, uh, before the end of this year or 2023. So I can get back to you on that. Well, either way, that will be a great development for society. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe too great. Anyway, Christina, thank you. We really appreciate it, Christina <laughs> Parts and Evelis. So is NVIDIA stock a buy at these levels, or are there better plays in the sector? Let's bring in Steve Grasso. He's CEO of Grasso Global and a CNBC contributor. All right, Steve, it's great to see you. And there's been a lot of back and forth with chips and what's going to happen post-pandemic after the inventory build. Where, where are your thoughts these days? <clears throat> So the, the way I feel, though, Kelly, is, is you know, I, I've stated this. I've been, this has been my, my premise, where if, if you have a, a, a lack of a chip supply, the market starts to ramp up, and they want to make sure that they never get caught behind the eight ball again, so to speak. So they overorder. So they oversupply for the next issue that's going to take place. If they do that, we're going to have a supply glut. If you have a supply glut... Chips are no different than any other commodity. They will trade off of that and they will decrease in value. NVIDIA, though, is the premium name in the semiconductor space. So if you just look on a technical basis, the stock came from 323 down to 213. Mm -hmm. It's right at that 50% retracement mark right now. Yeah, it's around 268. That's where you want to make sure that... God. And, and so to you, that's an important line for it to stay above. Like you said, this is the play that you like best in this space you know, for all of some of what Christina outlined, they also made announcements um, that have to do with EVs and connected cars and, and a lot of different things. So even though they've been as volatile as you describe, would you recommend that investors stay there versus maybe worrying about the rest of the SMH? We've heard others recommend names that are more like Qualcomm and Broadcom as kind of the, the safer technology or, or chip plays right now. All of those chips, all of the charts, if you look at all the charts, they all look very, uh, very much the same in my, in my book. There's, there's maybe one or two standouts, but they're all in a declining trend line. NVIDIA is okay to put money to work as long as it holds that 268 level, and, and you could keep it really on a tight stop. We're right here. So if it breaks down, it's going to break down further. So hold the 268 level. I'd be a buyer there. They have NVIDIA Drive platform. And O'Kelly, there was the metaverse, 
And now there's the Omniverse. It's a digital <laughs> twin of reality now. Okay, I this can't. Is one, no. this, is one, this is one to watch. Connected home, connected car, connected life. So 267 now and, and change on the stock. Seriously, how long do people wait uh, for clarity on whether it's a bottom here or, you know, what kind of, what kind of time frame do you, do you finally just say, look, you pull the trigger? I would not be a buyer of NVIDIA unless it holds 268 for a, a number of days. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I mean that uh, truthfully. I would not, I'd rather miss it and buy it at 275 than to be a buyer here and have a trade back down to 250 Very interesting. Steve, thanks for joining us today. It's good to see you. Steve Grasso Good with the NVIDIA and really the chipmaker playbook. Still ahead, P&G on pace for its third straight month of losses for the first time in two years. One analyst is saying the stock is a post-pandemic buy right now. He'll make his case with P&G almost in correction from its highs. And speaking of post-pandemic, Robinhood has plunged more than 80% from its peak, but now it's rolling out a number of new offerings in an effort to get back on track. We'll take a look at their roadmap with the stock quietly on pace to snap a six-month losing streak. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow 30 heat map with Boeing, Nike, and J.P. Morgan leading the way. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. We're just off session highs. That's when the Dow was up 313, and it's up 260 right now with the NASDAQ leading the way up 1.5%. In terms of sectors, the financials doing as well as you might expect with rates on the rise today. They're up 1.6%. Energy going the other way. It's down about 7 tenths with oil lagging. Cloud and remote work names are also helping the NASDAQ 100 today. Datadog, DocuSign, Zoom, and Adobe. Datadog up almost 7%. Zoom and DocuSign were at 52-week lows earlier this month. And the housing stocks lagging again as rates surge, including Masco, Williams-Sonoma, and Home Depot. All of these are in the XHB, which we sort of call the Home Builders ETF, but uh, there you go, a bunch of different housing components. And the builders have been struggling all month with Pulte and Toll down about 6%. They're both on pace for their third straight month of losses and their worst quarter since the beginning of the pandemic. And let's end with a check on the China internet stocks. Aichiyi, Billy Billy, Pinduoduo, Baba, NetEase, all higher. Look at Aichiyi up 26%, but again, it's about a $4 stock. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. It was a split verdict in the second trial over the Capitol Hill insurrection. Floyd Griffin, a county commissioner from New Mexico, was found guilty of illegally entering restricted areas, but he was acquitted of engaging in disorderly conduct during the riot. He's one of the few riot defendants who's not accused of entering the Capitol building or engaging in violent or destructive behavior. 
Ford, meantime, is recalling nearly 215,000 pickup trucks and SUVs to fix possible brake fluid leaks. The recall affects certain F-150s, Ford Expeditions, and Lincoln Navigators from the model years 2016 through 2018. This is Ford's third recall for the same issue. And in New York City, school and daycare mask mandates for the youngest children are set to go away. Mask wearing for kids ages 2 to 4 will become optional on April 4th. That's if COVID risk levels remain low. Now, at the same time, New York's mayor says he's not planning, at least yet, to make any changes to vaccine mandates for the city's professional sports teams. And on the news tonight, preparing for possible Russian cyber attacks in the U.S., how some companies are getting ready. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly? Rahel, thank you very much. Rahel Solomon. Ahead, oil is lower today, but crude and Brent both up 47% year-to-date. But there's a new ETF to track the traditional energy companies making a move into renewables. Should investors jump into it? And could this actually put more pressure on oil and gas companies not to invest in higher production? We'll talk to one of the fund managers next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The war in Ukraine has roiled the global energy market, sending oil and gas prices soaring. Crane shares just launched a new ETF tracking companies in high emission industries as they transition to greener energy. The global carbon transition ETF, ticker KGHG, is up about 1.5% since it began trading last week. And its goal is to invest in future low-carbon leaders. That uh, plan could be spoiled as oil producers are asked to do more to tamp down prices right now. Joining me now is Luke Oliver. He's managing director at Crane Shares. Luke, it's great to see you again. Before we delve into this, can I ask you about the carbon ETF that we've been following? I mean, this was an amazing performer last year. You might think that the carbon price would be higher than ever right now, uh, but the opposite is going on. What's going on there? Can you explain that? Absolutely. Thank you very much again, Kelly, for for having us on. The carbon market's been fascinating. I think we we saw... um, you know, a, a bit of a technical sell-off on sort of day two of the, the invasion that really roiled the markets. And I think the markets haven't quite come back, although they obviously recognize the, the technical nature of the sell-off, and we've seen, seen that rebound. But it is reasonable. We've been doing a lot of work on this. Should we be a little higher than where we were or a little lower um, where we were in a pre, pre-sell-off? And I think, I think we're in a reasonable spot. I think we should see this um, possibly getting back to the sort of 90 um, EUAs, European carbon, getting back to the 80 sort of mark, the euro mark. But what's happening is that we've got these dueling, dueling movements. We've got the fact that uh, we've got less natural gas flowing from Russia, which means more coal, more oil being burnt, which creates more emissions, which is why, as you, you know, rightly said, you could assume um, maybe we see higher carbon prices. But at the right. same time, higher energy could usher in uh, potentially you know, recessionary, um, recessionary uh, pressure that might actually reduce emissions in the net. So I think the net of this is slightly positive for carbon, but there's a lot of uncertainty. So it's really interesting. Cautious. It's almost like its own little yield curve where it's trying to predict future demand and, and the bearishness there is offsetting the bullishness now. But yeah, I wonder also beneath the surface, we've seen policymakers in Europe specifically take um, you know capacity out of the market in order to drive up prices in recent years. Have they changed course at all? Because right now, obviously, if you want more coal and other things to kind of keep the lights on, it might help if people didn't have to pay up for emitting carbon. Yeah, and so they haven't changed at all. In fact, what actually helped the market uh, regain its confidence in the last couple of weeks is the fact that the uh, the market stability reserve, which is buying supply, as you mentioned, the Fit for 55 program, which is the overall tightening of the market, which is increasing the decline in supply over time, 
all of those being reaffirmed. We're also seeing that in, in the California market, these programs being reaffirmed. And I think it's really important to notice that the price of energy isn't higher because of the price of carbon. In fact, it has very little impact at this stage. So reducing or taking, the, no pun intended, the foot off the gas on tightening the carbon market won't really change outcomes for energy prices and will just put a, a hole in, in the efforts to, um, you know, over, over the long term fight, fight climate change. So what I think is key to note is that energy security and just national security has become a much bigger priority in Europe. But it doesn't mean that just because climate and carbon prices have moved to priority two, that they're not still, um, you know, a very strong priority. And we've seen, we've seen those markets, but the European Commission speak very clearly that I they mean, are not is that And everything you say is so important. And there's so many contradictory signals going on because you have policymakers on the one hand upset that the industry isn't producing more. On the other hand, they're not, you know, they're still charging a price for emitting carbon, basically, and they're not they're not lowering that right now. Is it basically that it's so lucrative because of where prices are that, for, that producers can just absorb the carbon price and it's, it's not that big a deal to them? Because I have to imagine it's a disincentive. That's the whole point of it existing. It, 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 it should be a disincentive. And, and going into this now, we couldn't predict what happened in the Ukraine, but it's very clearly the point is to disrupt, is to increase costs on companies that continue to, to, to pollute and to not shift away to greener or more efficient ways of producing energy. So that hasn't changed. And although we, while we're in the thick of it, the urgency of what's happening between Russia, Ukraine and Europe can't, can't be dismissed. We must not get away from the objective of, of reducing emissions. We must decarbonize. So I think that that stands, Europe still stands right behind it. We're seeing the market recovering. And I think just as you say, there's some, there's, there's, the way we model it is we look at the declining supply over time and then we address, adjust that, that right. demand curve. There's other things that could play in. Does Germany ration natural mm -hmm. gas and maybe shut down certain industries for the short term, which might put a bit of weakness into the market? We're seeing all of this being priced in. So I think it's great to see how efficient the carbon markets are it's, and that they are pricing in all of these factors. It's fascinating. I totally agree with you. And it's a window that we didn't used to have into the specific dynamics of the energy market and the fossil fuel emitters especially. So as we mentioned, you have a new ETF now. It's a basket yes. of names that are traditional energy producers that you think are also kind of leading the charge on renewables. Give me an example of the component there. And this would be, it almost seems to me, the, the, the worst performers over time because they have kind of mixed, mixed investment strategies and, you know, a cash cow over here, but it, someone, you know, an investment engine over there. Why do you think this is going to be a good product for investors? Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe if you get, just just to back up for one second on that is that our, our overall vision here is that we must have decarbonization. 80% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. That's just not sustainable. It's not going to work. We must get away from that. So to do that, we see being long the price of carbon is the pure play on almost the antithesis of polluting. You need to be long the right companies. That's not necessarily the clean companies. It's these companies. And I'll get to that in just a second. And we also want to be long the resources that are going to be needed to feed that machine that is going to allow us to electrify, to get scalable green hydrogen. It could involve nuclear, but we need to get away from burning fossil fuels. So a great example of a, of a company is uh, Fortescue. It's an Australian iron ore miner. So investors have looked at that and said that's a, that's a company that is dirty. That's a company that is a legacy industry that maybe doesn't have a future. And it's this very, it's a value stock. It's not very exciting. It's unloved. It's been starved of investment. What's happening is that 
These companies that we look at are companies that actually have these incredible adjacencies. So what's Fortescue good at? It's good at huge scale infrastructure projects, which is what mining is. And they're great at finding a, an off-ramp for their product, whether it be iron ore or something else. Now that's something else for a company that is in the desert in Australia, they also have a lot of wind and they have a lot of sun. Hmm. And so they are shifting in a big way towards green energy, renewable energy to create green hydrogen. So when people value this like an old industrial stock, what they're missing potentially is that this is going to evolve into one of the leaders of green hydrogen and therefore green energy for the future. So we think there are a lot of companies yeah. that are undervalued. Their, their true growth potential isn't being, being captured and, there's, and that creates opportunity. And that's Great that's, point. That's and we've seen that. It's a little bit like Ford and GM trying to kind of cultivate, you know, the industries of the future within uh, the companies of today. Orsted is another name in here. Uh, you've got names like Lind as well. So a bunch of holdings that don't usually, as you say, you know, are, they're not usually right on the tip of people's tongues. But uh, these days, what people are looking for is very different. Luke, it's great to have you. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Luke Oliver joining us from Crane Shares. Up next, check out this mystery chart. It's down about 8% so far this year, but up 50% in the last two years. We've got the name and why one analyst says changing consumer behavior post-pandemic will be the secret to its success. Speaking of trading, Robinhood is getting into the savings business. We've got its new offerings and whether they can help grow the user base as that retail trading boom wears off. Back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Take a quick look at shares of BuzzFeed. The stock opened lower but has now gone positive after a report from CNBC.com. It's fluctuating, I should say. Uh, sources telling CNBC's Alex Sherman that several large shareholders are urging CEO Jonah Peretti to shut down the company's news organization. The news division has about 100 employees and it still loses about $10 million a year, according to the sources. One shareholder towards CNBC shutting down the newsroom could add up to $300 million of market cap to the struggling stock. It's under $5 a share right now. For more details, you can head over to CNBC.com. Meantime, when you think of pandemic darlings, you probably think of the Zooms and Pelotons of the world, but they exist in the consumer staples sector, too. One analyst actually sees a growing divide between names in the space that have a solid business and those that need a pandemic environment to outperform. Joining me now is Bill Chappell. He's a managing director at Truist Securities. And Bill, you've identified this gap. Uh, who are some of the winners and, and the losers here? Well, what we talked about today, good morning and th good afternoon, and thanks for having me, was, was Procter & Gamble in particular. But the, the point is, over the past two years, everybody uh, was lifted by people spending time at home, around the house, work from home, be it not just uh, household uh, product companies, but food companies that were fairly mediocre for five to 10 years prior. And you saw ketchup sales up 40% for the first three months of the pandemic. So everybody got that lift, and it made it next to impossible to figure out who the winners and the losers were. Uh, during the past two years. And what we're saying today is now, as we're getting to the new normal, whatever that might be, the, the, the trends are visible. You can see who's outperformed, see who really is coming out of the pandemic stronger. Whereas every company says they're coming out of the pandemic stronger. There are a few like Procter & Gamble that, that truly are. They were stronger going into it. They were beating and raising, they were streamlining their business. And now coming out of it, we think you can see a separation from other consumer staple stocks sure. as people can get a real stripes that they have. Your price target is 175. It's trading around 150 right now. What is it that is setting them apart? It's 
you know, for for PNG in particular, it's it's a the long journey they've done by uh, seven eight years ago when they started. They got rid of a hundred uh, underperforming brands, including their a big part of their beauty business. They reorganized the whole operation. But the biggest thing that we love about it is they focused on product superiority, where they had a mantra where seventy percent plus of their products had to be superior than the next uh, competitive set. Me uh, think of something like Tide Pods, that much better than not only other pods, but also liquid. And having that technical superiority is what's gotten consumers to not just buy the brand, but buy the enhanced product. And that's part of what our thesis today is, as inflation hits all these companies and they're raising prices, we don't think consumers are going to be willing to give up their pods or give up uh, their enhanced razors or give up their enhanced uh, paper towels, you, you name it, of what they've done to enhance it just because prices have gone up. And so I think not only can they separate just because of their back end, but also they can weather inflation a lot better than they did in the past. Well, I, it's, it's a very interesting point. It certainly speak to experience in our household. I've, let's kind of close back to talking about Kerwick, Dr. Pepper. This is a bit of a different story. You have a hold on it. Tell me what the thought process is there. It, it, I wish I had a complex thesis, but it's fairly simple. Uh, you, me, we all worked from home for the past two years. And they saw a nice surge of people buying Keurig machines uh, because we were drinking more coffee at home. And now as we go back to work, we're going to drink less at home uh, or less K-Cups. And it's not that that's a, a bad for their business. They just had a two-year acceleration uh, of Keurig makers at, at, in household penetration of attachment rates, meaning the number of pods you uh, drink per home per day. And that's going to go down and, and probably worse than I think some of the three is looking for. And Keurig has always been viewed as Keurig and Dr. Pepper. When everything is going well, it's viewed as a beverage company, Dr. Pepper, and gets a higher multiple. When things in the coffee business aren't going so well, well it's viewed as a hybrid beverage and appliance company. And that's our concern as we go back to that hybrid valuation. You see multiple contraction. And it's not quite as exciting as it has it been as the past two years. It's fascinating. I love that pod attachment rate is something that you have to know on such a granular level. Not that you cover them, but it makes me think, all right, then it's bullish for the coffee chains. You know, if you're Starbucks, if you're Dunkin', obviously, if you're all the specialties and you're right that people are, are on the go more, they would seem to benefit. Um do you think the category overall, consumer staples overall, is at further risk of compression? In other words, is P&G well positioned in what's going to be a shrinking market, or is it not quite that severe? It's not that severe. I just think it's, from an investment standpoint, it's, it's become a stock picker's uh, game again. It's not, you know, it, it, for the past two years, it was just very, very tough to tell who, who was good and who was bad. Now it's it's from an operational standpoint, from a market share standpoint, from an advertising effectiveness standpoint, you can pick the winners and losers. Uh, and, and no, I mean, we're still going to be spending more time at home than we did in 2019. So the whole category still will have a, a new higher base. Yeah. But with ones that can outperform, will be a little bit easier to pick. That's great insight. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Bill Chappell with Truist. Still ahead, we've had a lot of unprecedented times lately. The muni market isn't immune. We'll talk about how moves in the yield curve are causing volatility there. And a quick programming note, activist investor Carl Icahn will join Scott Wapner on Closing Bell Overtime at 4 p.m. Eastern today. They'll talk McDonald's, Oxy, and so much more. Don't miss it.
As the idea of a potential half-point hike at the next Fed meeting picks up steam, investors have been caught a little flat-footed by the flattening yield curve, and that's spreading to the municipal bond market as well. My next guest says, quote, modern monetary uncertainty is fueling volatility there. Joining me now is Michael Zizas. He's U.S. public policy strategist at Morgan Stanley. Michael, it's good to have you, and, and walk me through the Thanks recent news uh, that you've been experiencing there. Yeah, well, listen, I think the, the, the journey the muni market's been on this year was it, it started the year quite rich, probably underappreciating the challenges that the Fed had in front of it to deal with inflation, the really complicated path it was going to have to follow. In fact, the, the fact that the Fed was really going to have to own the option to change its mind quite a bit. If the Fed owns its option to change its mind, that means bond market volatility because the bond market is short that option. And when you have elevated volatility in bond markets, it interrupts the demand channels for the muni market. You see mutual fund outflows, and the muni market's corrected quite a bit as a consequence. Now, none of that tells you that credit quality um, is poor, but it does tell you that we've got some technical challenges in the market. So I think the conundrum for the investor now is that you are probably being fairly compensated for credit risk, which is pretty stable. But um, as the Fed continues down this path, uh, risks are probably skewed to risk premiums staying higher and maybe even elevating a bit. Why is it that the curve, more so than just the outright levels of yields, are a headwind for munis? Well, I think for us, the curve is a representation of the Fed's challenge, as opposed to the Fed, the, the, the inverted curve, an inversion of the curve itself being a challenge. So we went back and studied prior inversion periods, the last five uh, to be specific. You didn't really see a difference in muni risk premia yields relative to treasuries before or after. But the, the the inversion itself speaks to what the Fed is trying to do, which is to challenge an inflation dynamic, which is uncertain in its cause. And it's trying to stay out ahead of inflation taking hold in the mentality of the U.S. economy. And curve inversion makes sense in that environment. But that uncertainty in and of itself drives yield volatility in the Treasury market, as we've seen. That volatility is what interrupts the demand channel. It tends to make individual investors be duration shy and you, that's why you see mutual fund outflows. And we've been showing our kind of new favorite or our other favorite yield curve, the 10-year versus three-month, which is obviously sending a much more bullish signal. In fact, we're seeing a pretty wide spread. So if that curve is right and everything's going to be fine or at least a lot less scary than what the others are showing, or if you're an investor in this for the long run, maybe you like the opportunities this presents, where would you be in munis? I see airports, higher ed. What's your advice yeah. to investors? Yeah, certainly the sectors that we think give you a little extra premium, uh, and you're being fairly compensated for risk, airports and higher education, for example. And again, I think the, the thing to keep in mind here is that, yes, while this conundrum creates volatility in the short term, you're being fairly compensated today if you're putting money to work. Uh, so those are the two sectors that we like. And frankly, because the curve is inverting, we don't think that investors should be shying away from longer maturities either. If you're constructing a portfolio, I think you want to balance out those longer maturities with some shorter maturities. But uh, the typical muni investor sometimes is duration shy. Uh, we think that's the wrong impulse right now. Can you explain that just a, l- a little bit further? For yeah, well, so if you know, a typical muni investor, they're looking for munis to be kind of um, sleep at night money. Um, owning too much duration can feel quite risky. But if the purpose of owning that muni bond in your portfolio is to dampen overall volatility, you want some duration that improves your risk-adjusted returns. And if you think the yield curve is going to invert because, in our view, twos are going to out-yield tens in the Treasury curve, that means longer maturities are not just giving you more carry, they're going to give you less price volatility. 
Very interesting. Michael, thanks for delving into all of this and also giving people some places to look for opportunity. We appreciate it. Thanks very much. Michael Zizis joining us from Morgan Stanley. All right, up next, shares of Robinhood are higher today as they announce two new products in an effort to attract users. This was once a $47 billion uh, market cap, as you can see all the way to your right there. It's less than a $12 billion company today. We're going to look at their shift from trading disruptor to retirement account brokerage and whether that will pay off. The exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Been a tough year for Robinhood, down 24% since January. And the company is now making some moves beyond retail trading, launching two new products today, a cash card and savings accounts. Stock's up about 3% on the news. Kate Rooney has the details. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, this is the latest sign that Robinhood is embracing some of the less exciting parts of the finance world as the meme stock and retail boom fades. The new cash card and savings accounts you mentioned lets users invest spare change, as they're calling it, from transactions into stocks or crypto. For example, say something costs $5.75, Robinhood will auto-invest the remaining $0.25. It's also offering direct deposit and early access to paychecks. I spoke to Robinhood's chief product officer about this, Aparna Shenapragada. She says it's a way to drive user growth, expand the definition of investing, and that some of these smaller investments cater to what she calls the crypto curious, those who might not be ready to go all in on that asset class. Another uh, idea that we are kind of pushing on, what we call this is like embedded crypto. This idea of like crypto comes with the product. Um, Same thing with the spending account. You can split your paycheck. You can say, hey, some part of it goes into crypto so that you're not feeling like you got to go all in on this uh, emerging ecosystem. The product suite puts Robinhood in direct competition with the likes of Chime, Acorns, and Stash, as well as uh, some of the publicly traded names, PayPal, Block, and SoFi. Those high-growth stocks, though, really getting hit this year. Robinhood, in particular, is down more than 80% from its all-time high. Kelly. And it's such a tell on the different environment. I mean, nothing tells you the meme trading boom is over, like (laughs) Robinhood launching, you know, a savings account. Um, But... How much is this costing them, Kate? Because, you know, getting people into crypto, especially a few pennies at a time, doesn't come cheap. Right, right. It could be what they call a loss leader, meaning that they're making interchange on this. So it's, it's not looking like a huge revenue driver. It's one of those things that like, tech companies really are known for. But you launch a product hoping that it brings new users in and then you can eventually monetize those users and hope that if they're depositing their paycheck or if they're spending with a Robinhood card, that eventually they'll do some of the higher Uh, yielding transactions, maybe trade stocks or options in some cases. So it's really about that single money app that a lot of the fintechs have talked about. You've got PayPal really going for the same thing. They're all converging to look a lot more like banks. And we didn't even mention the retirement accounts, but they're launching 401ks too. So definitely a sign that the trading boom, they they have to supplement that. They're not always going to be able to rely on retail traders. It's over. It's (laughs) over. Kate, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Our Kate Rooney. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.